0: Hello again, John chapter 11 this morning. You're turning there. The religious leaders are fighting Jesus tooth and nail down the stretch. It is down the stretch because, as we talked about last time, there's only a couple months left, chronologically speaking, until Jesus would go to the cross so historically here, his public ministry is winding down. The religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They just didn't want to believe what Jesus was saying. So they're doing their best to try to undermine what he's saying. Try to come up with some sort of a clever argument so that they don't have to believe. Well, they haven't come up with much so far. Their best argument so far is that Jesus is a sabbath day tradition breaker and i would agree with that he was jesus would agree as much in fact i almost think he targeted the sabbath day remember when he healed the lame man by the pool of bethesda that was on the sabbath day and then more recently when we were in john chapter nine when he healed the blind man that too was on the sabbath day I think sending a loud and clear message to the religious leaders that you are not free to take my law and then redefine that however you want to and then put a trip on the people as a result of that. They were leading the nation into legalism instead of what they should have been doing was pointing the nation to their Messiah, to Jesus Christ. And so, in contrast and accordingly, you get to chapter 10, where we've been the last couple weeks, that beautiful good shepherd discourse in which you see that huge and stark contrast between the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and the very, very bad shepherds, which were the religious leaders. And so Jesus says, no, you need to come out of the sheepfold, enter by way of the door, and join the flock Of God calling the nation to leave the fold of the religious leaders who were leading them astray. Because they should have been pointing people to Jesus. They should have known he was the one. His life matched the scriptures. So instead of, like John the Baptist, pointing people to Jesus, instead they were picking up rocks to throw at Jesus. Is what they were all about. So much so we saw last time, this is several times that this has happened, That they run Jesus out of town, literally. He's got to get away. He's got to retreat. Not uh, wave the white flag kind of retreat, not that kind of retreat, but more like retreat away with his boys in preparation for what was coming next. And you all know what was coming next very soon for Jesus. Sometimes we have to retreat away, especially when we're about to face some sort of a challenge in our lives. We just got back, the guys and I, we went to a retreat this weekend. It was an outstanding time of meeting with the Lord. He's faithful to meet you when you set yourself apart for his purposes, just to meet with him. You know, sometimes you can't get away for a weekend or even for a day, but you can probably go to the park for a little while and grab your Bible and hang out with the Lord. It's a retreat. We're supposed to be sanctified and consecrated for his purposes. And he really especially meets you. When you take the effort and the initiative to break away for a little while and meet with him one-on-one. Sometimes we're at home and, you know, the phone's ringing or email's coming in or television said, It's just distractions. let good to just retreat and break away. And that's what he's doing with the boys, with his guys, with the disciples. Of course, what also happened, we saw last time, is a bunch of people went with them. He's beyond the Jordan at the place where John was baptizing. And apparently, as we've noticed, there's been this dialogue between the religious leaders and Jesus. And a lot of people are listening and paying attention, and they're going, wait a minute here. These guys are off base, and they're starting to warm up to Jesus. They're starting to realize his life matches the scriptures. The religious leaders' hearts are being exposed as they were trying to give someone else the credit for a miracle that Jesus had clearly done. So it said at the end of John chapter 10 last time that many came to him out beyond the Jordan, out in the wilderness where John was. And said, John, speaking of John the Baptist, performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. All the things that John spoke about this man were true. Do you believe that this morning? Capital Community Church. Do you believe that the things that John the Baptist spoke about Jesus were true? Do you believe that the Bible, what it says about Jesus, is true? Yeah, I do too. I absolutely do. I know most of you, if not all of you, have entrusted your souls... To Jesus because of the sacrifice that he made on the cross because you believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ have you done that this morning have you entrusted your soul to Jesus Christ I believe him I believe his word I believe what it tells me about him that's a wonderful thing the problem is the challenge is sometimes we trust our souls to God and then we spend the rest of our days learning how to trust our lives unto God you would think it would be the other way around. You know. You would think you would warm up by trusting your life to him, and then you would trust your soul. But it doesn't work that way. You say, Lord, you're going to take care of my eternity, when I'm having a hard time with trusting you today. And we have that problem sometimes as Christians, specifically in the areas of his timing and his will for our lives. Hard sometimes to let go of those things and leave them entirely in his hands. Marilyn and I were having an exchange on Facebook, you can chat on Facebook, you can do all kinds of things on Facebook these days, and I asked her permission to bring up this subject, and she agreed because she thought it would be a great subject to discuss on Sunday morning. But she posted a question on our Capitola Community Church Facebook page, a question that every Christian has asked at one time or another, and often we ask multiple times down throughout the years. The question was essentially along the lines of, why does it seem sometimes like God does not answer prayer? Ever felt like that before? Of course. And the truth is, we all know, intellectually, he does answer prayer. Here's the challenge and what we're going to look at this morning in the text. He does answer prayer, he just doesn't always answer prayer the way I want him to or when I want him to. That's the difficulty, and that's why sometimes I wonder if he answers, because he does it his way. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm glad he does. I'm glad God does things in my life his way, or I wouldn't even be here this morning, how about you? So I'm glad that he has his way in my life, but still, that doesn't mean it's easy. And so it's a reminder, again, it's going to jump off the page in this text here. It's a wonderful story, we're only going to get halfway through this morning, You know the story where Jesus is going to miraculously raise Lazarus from the grave, from death. It's an awesome, climactic moment in his ministry. It is the highlighted um, miracle in the book of John besides his own resurrection. It is a spectacular, spectacular event, but... Here, if we read a little bit between the lines, we're going to see that he's going to address us along these lines this morning of learning to trust him. Learning to trust him with his timing and with his will for our lives. Well, John chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, we know from the Gospels that Mary and Martha and Lazarus had a very special relationship with Jesus. They had a special bond. And I can only imagine what that must have been like. You know, in a little while, we're going to have an agape feast, a fellowship luncheon together. I really love fellowship. I love sitting around and sharing a meal. I like to eat, but... I love sharing a meal with God's people talking about the Lord. But could you imagine sharing a meal and talking to the Lord at the same time? So that's what they got to do. It was a bond there. They had opened up their hearts to him. And they'd also opened up their home for him, sort of a retreat center, a getaway. And, of course, that's saying something because whenever the Lord Jesus makes a reservation, it's always Jesus plus 12, because he's always traveling with the disciples. So it's always Thanksgiving dinner at Mary and Martha and Lazarus's home when they come to town. So there's this special friendship. In fact, I don't want to get too far out ahead of ourselves this morning. We're not going to look at it just yet, but if you peek down at verse 3, you know Lazarus is sick. They're going to send a message to Jesus that he is sick. And the message is simply, him whom you love is sick. And the word for love there is a specific word. You know, in the Greek language, there are several words for love. We only have one word. Our language is very simple, okay? So the word in verse 2 here, love, or in verse 3, excuse me, love, is the word phileo. And that describes a brotherly or a friendship kind of love. So that is an evident thing. Even in the note or in the message that they're sending Jesus, your friend Lazarus is sick, the one who you love, your buddy the one that you hang out with. So there's a special relationship there. But what I want you to know from the beginning as we dive into the text in order to really understand where we're coming from this morning is that although they had this special friendship with Jesus, it did not insulate them from difficulty, nor did it make them immune from tragedy. Just like it does not for me and for you. I have a friend in God. He calls me friend, right? We sing. He's called us friends. I no longer call you servants. I call you my friends, Jesus said to his disciples, right? So we're a friend of God, but we don't have like this kind of thing where we're now immune to the difficulties of life. In fact, they realize that as they send word to Jesus in verse three, Mary and Martha, you'll notice they take no presumption here on the basis of that friendship. They simply just lay it out before him. It says in verse three, therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now notice that they just present that before the Lord. They don't tell him what they think he ought to do. They just inform him of Lazarus's plight, and then they appeal to his love for Lazarus and say, Hey, Lord, whatever your phileo love commands that you do in this instance, we're just going to lay that at your feet. And by the way, that is such a key for you and for me in our prayers. My suspicion is sometimes that when we perceive that God isn't answering our prayers, it is for this very reason. I often catch myself, how about you? I often catch myself giving the Lord directions in my prayers. I'm asking him for something, but it's really more like I'm telling him to do something. And we have to be careful of that. Isaiah 40, verse 13 says, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor, who has taught him? It's a rhetorical question, right? Nobody has directed the Spirit of the Lord. Nobody has counseled God. But in reality, I confess, I've tried. Have you? Yeah, where you kind of think, maybe, Lord, we should do it this way. As someone once said, most people wish to serve God, but only in an advisory capacity. God doesn't need any consultants. You know that, right? I mean, we have consultants in the world, and they serve their purpose, but God doesn't really need any consultants. We like to consult. I like to consult God. Well, Lord, there's this situation. I have a really good idea of how I think we ought to go about solving this problem. I can only imagine he just chuckles when I do that. What? Really, Joe? You have an idea? (laughs) Tell me about that, son. I want to hear what you have to think about that. The man who was... uh, uh, speaking at the retreat this weekend, Pastor John Corson said this one time, along these lines, I'm convinced that the Lord always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. But we struggle with leaving the choice with him sometimes, because like our friend Lazarus, many of us, were Christians, we're going to heaven, born again in the Spirit of God, but we oftentimes have sickness, or a trial, or a challenge that makes it very, very difficult to just leave things entirely in his hands. We tend to look at things in our lives in a very straightforward manner. I'm sick. I need to get better. Right? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That's exactly what I think. I'm sick. I need to get better. Lord, heal me. Right? But oftentimes he doesn't quite work that way the way that he is working, we don't always see it. It's not always apparent to us that there is purpose in the midst of trial and tragedy and suffering and pain and all those things. Well, verse four is a reminder of just that. And we need that reminder. I know you all know this intellectually, but it's good sometimes to be reminded that what God allows to come your way, it comes for a reason. Verse four, when Jesus heard that, that is that Lazarus was sick, He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for what? The glory of God. That the Son of God may be glorified through it. Why was Lazarus sick? So that Jesus could be glorified. What's Jesus going to do? You know, we're going to see it next time. He's going to raise Lazarus, right? And he's going to be glorified. So that's why Lazarus was sick, by the way. Thank you, Lord, sometimes. That you can be glorified through my life even when it's painful for me notice though also there in verse 4 that he says this sickness is not unto death now what's interesting about that is by the time that Jesus arrives in Bethany Lazarus would have been in the grave dead for four days So that's kinda fascinating when you think about it because now we know that ultimately he's gonna be raised so ultimately Jesus is right that the sickness wasn't unto death, but he does die. And I just wonder if at that moment in time when the disciples show up to Bethany and they hear Lazarus is dead, or actually as we're going to see in a little while when Jesus tells them, because he already knows, that Lazarus is dead, I just wonder if just for a moment, because I know my heart, I just wonder if the disciples didn't lose heart a little bit, didn't lose confidence, if just a terrible, terrible thought came across, their minds were like, oh no, Lazarus is dead, and Jesus said the sickness is not unto death. Was he wrong? How could he be God and be wrong? How could he be omniscient and be wrong? Well, this is terrible. And just for a half a second, they lost confidence in their God. I submit to you this morning that we have that same challenge as Christians. That we expect things to happen a certain way, Based upon his goodness, based upon who he is, based upon his word. And when they don't happen the way that we expect them to happen, we lose heart. We lose confidence. We struggle to trust again. Because what they thought was going to be happening now, what they thought was going to take place, it can't happen. What did they think was going to happen? They thought, as Jesus had done throughout the gospel, he got there ahead of time, they're about to be dead, he heals them. He didn't say he was going to heal Lazarus. He never said that. But that's what they thought, and so they're let down in their hearts. You ever been a, a point in your life, just a terrible, terrible place of despair and brokenness? Probably everybody in here dealt with an issue so traumatic that it just felt crushing. Like, how am I ever going to get up off the ground with this one? even to the point where you feel like giving up. Lord, I give up. I give up this job. I give up this ministry. I don't want anything to do with it anymore. I give up my life. I, I, I just give up. It's too difficult. It's too painful. And then God, he comes alongside you. He ministers to you through the most difficult storm that you've ever been through. And there are probably many testimonies in this room that he got you to just kind of hang in there to just sort of stay the course and then right around the corner is the glory of God. And you go, oh, now I understand. Now I see. I wish I had known, but he's teaching me to trust him. But it was right around the corner. I just needed to hold on a little bit longer. And that's why he says this sickness is not unto death. It is for the glory of God. One of the reasons why sometimes we lose rest, we use that word rest to rest in Jesus, it's another word for trust. One of the reasons why we lose rest sometimes is because we're trying to do God's job for him. We're trying to think for God. You ever done that before? Well, here are the possibilities in the situation and God's gonna do this or this. I know him, he's gotta do this, so that's gonna happen. And yet, when God looks at the situation, there's like an infinite number of possibilities. And so often, he's going to do something like this. And I'm not ready for it, and so I lose confidence. Let me tell you something. If you try to think for God, it will wear you out and wear you down. Get out of that business right now. It doesn't do you any good. Now, another reason why we lose rest sometimes is because we forget. We forget that when we gave our lives to Jesus Christ, that at that point in time, we Gave our lives to Jesus Christ. And now our lives are for him to use as he wants to. And most of the time, when peace is lacking in my life, it's because I'm lacking that surrender to him. It's because I'm trying to grab hold of the reins again. I want control. And I'm unwilling to just let him do his thing. As if somehow he's going to make a mistake along the way. I think to myself, well... I just need, Lord, this material thing. That's it. Once that addition to our house is done, we'll be fine. Or this career move. I just need that little bump in pay, and we'll be able to pay our bills and tithe. Just as long as we can get that, it'll all be good. Lord, I just need this this relationship here to be fixed. Just fix this. Just improve it a little bit. That's the only thing I ask of you, and it's a good thing, right, a relationship being fixed. And, Lord, if you do that... Then I'll be good. Then I'll have peace again. That's what we do sometimes. And then in the process, nowhere often in my prayer is the Lord's agenda at all. It's my agenda. Even if the stuff is good. It's all good things, but what about his agenda? What about his will? Lord, no, not your will. My will, Lord. My will be done sometimes, I think. When I was uh, in Nepal... I got to tell the second services, too. I didn't want to go. I, I don't want anyone to think I'm some super spiritual guy. I'm not. My pastor made me go on a missions trip to Nepal. People here the know Pastor Dave, he made me go. I said, Pastor Dave, I don't want to go to Nepal. He said, no, you're going. am like, all right, I guess I'm going to Nepal. I don't really like being away from my family and friends for two weeks. How about you? That's why I didn't want to go. And the whole time I was there, I was having a great time, and I was also kind of having a bad time because I was away from my family and my friends. It's just how I am a little bit. And yet, I don't know that I reference ministerially drawing illustrations from anything else more than that trip. God so taught me, so ministered to me while I was there. I do not want to be there. I don't know if I'll ever go back. But... I really, really learned some incredible things. One of the things I learned along these lines of just trusting God <laughs> in that situation. By the way, because I didn't want to go, my will be done. No, you're going. All right, Lord. And He ministered to me. But we met a young man there. There was a man who was driving us around. He's sort of our host for that trip, and he would pick us up and drop us off and take us around. And I was just blown away by these guys. They're young, you know. They dig their graves before they join the Gospel for Asia Bible College because in that part of the world you become a Christian, the chances of persecution are 100%. You may not die, but you will be persecuted and you will be beaten at one time or another. They tell every single student that enters those Bible colleges. They go off into the village and they plant a church in somewhere out in the middle of nowhere where they've never seen a TV or an airplane in their life and they haven't heard the name of Jesus. And oftentimes they get beaten down right there on the spot. So their brand of Christianity is a little bit uppity for us. They're on fire for God. They're sold out for God. They're willing to die for God. I'm telling you. And we were just enjoying our time with them. We really did. And we kept asking this young man questions. I was so impressed by him. I wanted to know what he thought about stuff. I wanted to hear his opinion on things. He would not give it to me what do you think about this situation that the pastor's doing in your Bible college over here? He's like, well, you know, it's not really about my will, thy will be done, he would say. We're like, okay, but what about this kind of situation over there? He'd be like, well, you know, it's not really about my will. He would always look up and go, thy will be done every single time. We're like, bro, we know we're Bible teachers, okay? We understand what you're saying. Tell me what your opinion is about this subject. Well, you know, it's not really my will, it's thy will. And, you know, it just makes you sick after a while, I'm going to get out of here. This guy's driving me crazy. He's just way too committed to Christ. (laughs) What a great lesson that you learn sometimes in being around that. It is a wonderful, wonderful day in the life of a Christian, whether you live in Nepal or whether you live in the United States, where you're reminded that it is time sometimes to sort of re-surrender yourself to him. Reminded that you did give your life to him. You didn't just place your trust in him. You said, no, I am yours. All I am, we said, is what? Yours. We sing it because we believe that. And God can be trusted. Let me Listen to me. God can be trusted with your life. You go to John chapter 6, and remember, there's the loaves and the fish. And then afterwards, they picked up 12 fragments of baskets because he's not going to waste anything. A life that is offered to God, he will redeem He's faithful, and you can trust him with that. So maybe that is you this morning. I know it's me almost daily, but maybe especially this morning, God would have you resurrender, let go of everything you're trying to cling to, and let him, trust him with these things once again. Because, see, for me, what I look at sometimes as a tragedy or as a trial, he looks as an opportunity for teaching. Look at these next couple verses. You could not see a more perfect example of what I'm talking about. Look at the connection between verse 5 and verse 6. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. We already said that. It's true. He loved them. When he heard that he, talking about Lazarus, right? When he heard that he was sick, he immediately rushed to be at their side. No, it doesn't say that. It says he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, wait a minute, Lord. I'm not quite sure I understand this. It says you loved them, but you stayed back? He delayed his coming? His delay was not coming from a lack of love. It was motivated by his love. Now, listen to this. Two different words. Again, it's why we pulled out the first one. In verse 3, the word for love is Phileo, it's that friendship, brotherly love. In verse 5, the Greek word is agape. Agape love is the best kind of love. It's the love of God, and it is the love that does what's best for the other person. So in a situation where someone has given their life to God, as Lazarus had, the very best, most loving thing that Jesus Christ could do in that situation was to delay. But I don't like delay you say i say who here likes delay i don't like delay lord heal me now fix that problem now restore that marriage now do this for us now lord please even though they're good things god and you don't have to have been a christian for a really long time to know that god is always late from our perspective he's always late i think And don't get me wrong, God is never, ever, ever late. But sometimes I think he's late because his um, watch is calibrated to things of eternal significance rather than temporal significance. He's on a different timeline than I'm on. And so I think he's late when in reality he is perfect in his timing. Remember in the Old Testament the story of Joseph? God gave Joseph all of these visions but then it took forever for these things seemingly from Joseph's perspective for them to be fulfilled now I don't know I'm speculating and you don't know but how do we know that if Joseph had gotten out of prison one day earlier or one day later that what had happened in the book of Genesis wouldn't have happened maybe if he gets out later and he's not the Pharaoh's right-hand man when his brothers come to visit Pharaoh during the famine Maybe the Pharaoh sends them packing. Hey, I got nothing for you. I don't care who you are. And there's no reunion between Joseph and his brothers. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe if he's out earlier, Joseph's power goes to his head. He's the Pharaoh's right-hand man. He's in control now, and he has all of his brothers executed, rightfully so, for what they did to him. So how do we not know that it isn't God's perfect timing that he spent exactly the amount of days in prison he needed to spend? You just got to trust him. There is timing involved in what God does. It's not that he's slack on his promises. He can be trusted with your watch. That's why he spent two more days in this place where he was. Then it says, verse 7, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So they are back in the northern part of Israel. Remember, Judea is the southern part of Israel where Jerusalem is. They were in Jerusalem, we saw last week, in the middle of chapter 10. We saw that confrontation where the religious leaders came to Jesus and said, why don't you just come out and say it? Say it plainly, are you the Christ? And he did one up on that. He said, yeah, not only am I the Messiah, but I'm also God's son, and I'm equal to the Father. And of course, that got them all upset, and they picked up stones to throw at him. So you understand that now that they've retreated to this place beyond the Jordan, Right where John was baptizing, hanging out with the disciples. When he poses to the disciples that they go back to Jerusalem, you could understand why they might be just a little bit nervous here. It says, The disciples said to him, Rabbi, just in case you've forgotten, Rabbi, uh, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? And I love how they say, Are you going there again? Jesus said, Let us go down there. And they say, Hey, Jesus, are you going to go there? Have fun. <laughs> Have fun in Nepal. I'm going to stay here. It's nice and warm. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, remember, the Jews, they divided up the day into two parts. Between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m., that was called day. And between 6 p.m. and then 6 a.m., that was called night. Jesus here is speaking figuratively about the day and night of his life. What he is essentially saying is that as long as, as long as we, as long as he followed the plan of the Father, as long as we walk in the light of day, or in other words, as long as you walk in the will of God, you got nothing to worry about. you believe that? you believe that not one person's life that is walking in the will of God ends prematurely? He's sovereign. If you walk in the will of God, you don't have to be freaked out about those kinds of things. book of Hebrews says it is appointed for men to die once. There is an appointment, a day and a time, for each person here in the room this morning, this afternoon, just now. An appointment for each one. of. I don't care how many airbags you have. I don't care how many milligrams of vitamin C you take, you have an appointment somewhere down the road. And when your time is up, it's up. And until then, you don't have anything to worry about. As we've always said before, look, you're indestructible, right, until God's done with you. Oh, so does that mean I can jump off a 50-story building and I'll be okay because it's not my day? No, if you did that, that would be your day, right? Right? If he decided to do that. So you we know, don't tempt God with those kinds of things. But we can walk comfortably that there's an appointment for us to be with him according to his timeline. And if I'm walking in his will, I don't have to be worried about those kinds of things. He knows your day and time. He knew Lazarus's time even before the message came, even before they received word. Of course, he's Jesus, right? He knew. Look what he says to the disciples says, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Now, the word sleeps in the Old Testament would often be used to talk about someone who had died. But here's the problem. When you expect Jesus to do something completely different than what he's going to do, you misunderstand what he's saying. What did they think he was going to do? They thought he was going to get there and he was going to heal Lazarus, or even from a distance, remember? He didn't even have to be there. He would just go, just go your way. Your servant is healed. And they would get back and find out that the man's servant was healed. So the disciples just, they know. They don't even assume. They know, well, we know Jesus is going to heal Lazarus. So when Jesus says Lazarus sleeps, they don't get it. They don't understand. And often the same thing happens to you and me. When God tells me something, I don't understand because I've already told him what he's going to do. It's a multiple choice, and I've ruled out this, so I can't even hear what he has to say because he's trying to tell me this. So then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. (laughs) Let him sleep it off, Lord. He'll be fine. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. So then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But notice this. And I am glad, he said, for your sakes, that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. I love that. I am so glad for your sakes I was not there. What is he suggesting? If I had been there, I would have done what you wanted me to do, which is heal him. That's what you were expecting me to do. Had I been there, I would have healed him, but I'm so glad I was not there for your sakes. Because then, as we're going to see next time, we're going to see this incredible miracle. It's going to be awesome. And he's glad for their sakes that they're going to get to see that. So their conviction will be even stronger. See, sometimes delay results in delight. The longer that I go waiting for God's promise to unfold in my life, when it does, it's even better. And so that's what he's doing in this particular instance. But then take it one step further. Even better than that. Whose trial was this? It was Lazarus's trial, wasn't it? He was the one who was sick, he's the one who died, and yet Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought we were just talking about this, and we were saying sometimes we go through trials, and they're really rough, and then on the other side of the trial, as we go around the corner, we finally get to that breaking point, we go, oh, thank you, Lord. Now I understand why you did what you did. But in this instance, Lazarus died having no idea that God was seeking to glorify his son in other people's lives. And sometimes your trial is not about you. And that's difficult. Because that means I may never know what God was doing in that instance. Which means, Lord, help me to trust you, even if I have no promise of ever finding out what you are doing, this side of heaven. That's really trusting God. Verse 16, then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. That's Thomas, right? Isn't that pretty much Thomas right there in a nutshell? Let's just go and die with him and get this over with. (laughs) I mean, don't get me wrong. He's devoted. He's willing to die. He's like a sailor ready to go down with the ship. I mean, that much at least is admirable about Thomas. But he is a doubter, right? He is. He's negative. He infects the others sometimes. I like how it says that his name is the twin. The twin. There are those that believe that Thomas had a a twin brother or twin sister. I don't know. All I do know is that Thomas's twin is probably here with us this morning. He's me, or he's you, a doubter, one who loses heart sometimes. Oh, no, that's not you? Oh, you're just unswervable, unmovable, never once phased by anything that happens in your life. We act like that's like a totally foreign concept. I don't even know what you're talking about. I have never once lost faith in God whatsoever. No, he is Thomas picture of us. Isn't that funny? We look at Thomas and I mean I knew who Thomas was when I was a little kid. I think I knew who Thomas was before I knew who Elijah was or King David. I mean because everyone wanted to talk about Thomas the doubter. He's such a doubter. Like that's not me. That's Thomas. He was that doubting guy. (laughs) No, that's me. You notice that the children of Israel in the Old Testament, they're wandering through the wilderness, you know, and they're like complainers it's annoying really you study it's just annoying they just keep complaining over and over again and you look at it this story like they God brought you out it he freed you from the bondage of slavery and all you can do is complain such another picture right there of christians freed from the bondage of sin complaining wandering around in circles complaining to god But here's the good news. The good news is, is that Jesus is not turned off by our fickleness. Loves us anyway. Knows everything about you. Knew you would be fickle, right? That's how he is. He doesn't stop and like, oh, Thomas, dude, come on. You got a bad attitude, bro. He doesn't do that. You know what God does sometimes in my life, even when I don't have the best attitude, even when I'm losing heart, even when I'm not trusting him? He just keeps being God. And then somewhere along the way, I learn a lesson and go, oh, yeah, you're right. You are to be trusted. So, verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that he, again Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, in uh, Israel, the Jews, even to this day, the Arabs do the same thing. They don't like embalm a body like we do. If you're in the tomb for four days, you've been dead four days. They bury the same day. And I believe, this is my opinion, but I think very clearly, Jesus waited four days purposefully. There was a reason why he did it. I think because he wanted to prove a point here. He wanted to prove conclusively that this was a legitimate resurrection from the dead. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor Joe. How dead does a man have to be before he's dead? You ever seen the movie uh, The Princess Bride? So in the movie, the princess is about to marry this evil king and the heroes are coming to save the day well one of the compadres in the group dies and they take this man to the local town magician hoping that there could be a miracle and that magician is played by Billy Crystal and they go to him and he says well you know the thing is if he's all dead the only thing you could do is go through his pockets for loose change but fortunately for you your friend is only mostly dead he says only mostly dead The first time I saw that, I went, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. And yet, the tradition in many cultures around the world is just that. That people are sometimes mostly dead. In fact, in that day, the Jewish superstition was that when someone was dead, their spirit would hang by the body for three days, hoping to be resuscitated. And that they would finally depart from the body once... The third day had passed once we're on the fourth day. So we're not saying we believe that. Jesus knew that that wasn't the case. But he is catering to their expectations here so that he can show them that this miracle is 100% legitimate. So he could do what no one else could do. He could do a miracle that they could attribute to nothing else but God. That's why he did it that way. Setting the stage perfectly for a wonderful miracle. And not only that... You know what Jesus allowed people to do sometimes in his ministry? He allowed them to doubt him when he could have removed doubt. He was on the cross. He could have come down off of the cross and then jumped back up on the cross just to show them he could do it. He could have healed Lazarus. The second that someone started questioning him, and we're going to see in a minute they're going to question him. He could have gone, all right, he's fine now. But he allowed people, because we learn lessons in the process of not always knowing everything, of not being able to connect the dots in every instance, we learn lessons along the way. Watch how he allows Martha here, as we're going to read a few verses, to question him. It says in verse 18, "...now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother." So already there's a crowd gathering. Had Jesus healed Lazarus, would there have been a big crowd around? Probably not. So now that Lazarus has dead, there's more opportunity for the glory of Jesus to take place, which is what he said was the purpose for this trial in the first place, that the Son would be glorified. So people are gathering around, and it says, Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here... My brother would not have died. Now, no matter how many ways I read that, I can't help but see a little bit of a rebuke there. How about you? Lord, if you had only been here. And we know because Mary says something, again, we're going to see in next week's text, along those lines, as if the two sisters had been talking. Lord, where are you? Lord Jesus, if you had only been here, if you had only showed up. Now, if you pay close attention to the way that Jesus responds to these two sisters, you'll notice something that's pretty cool about God. That, by the way, God is big enough to allow you and me to be angry with him. I'm not recommending it. I'm not saying we should be. I'm just saying he's big enough to handle that. That's not the unpardonable sin. You don't get a lightning bolt for that. Oh, you're angry with me? No, that's not it at all. He will allow you to be angry. Now, you got to get out of that mode really quick, and here's why. The reason why is because it assumes that God did something wrong. but He didn't do anything wrong. Again, all of this is for the glory of his son. Someday we're going to be in heaven and go, man, every single trial that I question you about, Lord, I'm so sorry. There was eternal significance in those things. But at this point, Martha's not seeing it. Of course she's not seeing it. Understandably. Lord, if only you had been here and touched him. If only you had been able to just see him ahead of time. Lord, if you had known, if we'd got the message, if only, if only. I think we give way too much credence to the if onlys in our life, too much power there. Oh, if only I hadn't listened to that guy. If only we had just a little bit more money. If only this relationship was just a little bit better, I'd have more freedom. If only my job was so stressful, all those kinds of things. Is if God could only really begin to fulfill your life and bring joy and peace in your life, if only. Nothing could be further from the truth. And part of the problem is oftentimes we look around and we see other people and we think, God, how come you're not blessing me like that? If only I had her gifting. If only I had her money, if only I had her car, if only I had her health, his stuff, his friends. And we think that sometimes. As if God is not enough. As if once those if-onlys were removed, there wouldn't be another if-only after that. If only this, I'll be happy, but guess what? You get to that place and you go, no, Lord, there's another if-only, by the way. There would just be a never-ending string of if-onlys. And she is, Martha, just a little bit guilty of that here. She didn't doubt Jesus' ability to heal. She says, if only you were here. She knew he could. Here's the problem. Here's the thing that we're going to wrap up with here as we look at our last couple of verses. She didn't doubt Jesus' ability to heal. She doubted his willingness to help. There's a difference between those two things. There's not a person, I don't believe, in the sanctuary that doubts God's ability to heal. But maybe all of us at times doubt his willingness to help. And more specifically, we doubt his willingness to help me. And you doubt his willingness to help you. And that can be a problem sometimes. Because what that ends up happening is it ends up making God like big and galactic and universal, which he is, but it takes out the personal element of God. And then my faith becomes theoretical. It becomes doctrinal. Watch and see if you understand what I'm saying in the next few verses. Martha says, but even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, if I have faith, if I trust God if I know he wants to work in my life, my answer is, really? When? When are you going to do it? I want to see this. But her answer is theoretical. Her answer is doctrinal. Her answer is not personal. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. In other words, Uh, I read my Bible, Jesus, I get it. I know what you're saying. I know what Daniel said. I know what David said. I know what Job said. I know there is a resurrection. I get it. Thanks a lot. That's really comforting. Like when you go to a funeral and you you say, well, they're in a better place now. And that may be true, but it's insufficient to help with the current situation. But someone once said that in Jesus Christ... Every doctrine is personal. I love the fact that we don't place our trust ultimately in doctrine, but in a Savior. Look at this verse here. This verse, the next verse, is on a plaque on George Washington's tomb on his Mount Vernon estate because it's as good as they come. Because instead of it being... Some theoretical theory. It is so personal. Jesus makes it all so personal, so real for you, for me, for Martha. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. It's not found in some future event. It is in Jesus Christ. He's like, I didn't come here to kind of teach you the way to heaven per se. I am the way. It's not theology. It's a person in Jesus Christ, a Savior. It's not a premise. It's not a position. I hope all of us at Capitola Community Church would become good theologians and Bible students, but it's got to go beyond that. It's got to extend to the realm of personal. We know our Bibles. Great. But we need to know our Savior. He's the one who saves. He's the resurrection. When you're being sued, you need a lawyer, not a law book. When you're sick, you need a doctor, not WebMD. We all like to diagnose ourselves these days. We go online, you know, and we've got some... Traumatic injury, we got a huge blister on our finger. And I'm going to check it out. I'm going to go online, and I'm going to research. I'm going to read all up on this thing, and guess what? I've come to the conclusion, yep, confirmed, I'm dying (laughs) from a blister. The fact of the matter is, every single person in this room is terminal. You're all dying. All of us. From the day you were born, you started dying. And when you finally, someday, face... If the Lord should tarry, maybe he won't. Maybe he'll come today. It might be today. But if he were to tarry, and you were to have that last trial in your life, that very last trial, the great enemy of man, death, you don't need a systematic theology at that point. You need a Savior, Jesus Christ. Take it out of the realm of the theoretical and make it personal. It's a person. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So we come full circle. We started this morning where I asked you what? Do you believe this? And now Jesus, what does he do? He asks Martha in response to this, verse 26, do you believe this? Do you? I think we can do better than that. Do you believe this? Good, good. I don't do that often, but this is one time. We believe. We're emphatic about it, aren't we? We know it's true. He's shown us. He's placed his Holy Spirit inside of us. We trust him. Martha did too. She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into the world. How about you? I believe that with all my heart. And I believe and I trust God. I trust God. But I trust him to manage the universe. And I trust him to hold everything together, that it doesn't all fly apart. I trust him that we're going to have some cheeseburgers waiting for us this afternoon. I trust him with your life. I do. I trust him with the world. I trust him in the world. Here's my problem. Sometimes I have a hard time trusting him with my world. That's the difficulty. You come to me for counsel. I'm your pastor. I love giving counsel. Why? Because I firmly, firmly believe in God's promises for your life. I have the utmost confidence, complete and utter trust that God is going to minister to you, protect you, take care of you, save you. All of those things. I just sometimes have a hard time believing it for myself. That's how it is. God wants us to trust him. Now, why do you suppose? Why do you suppose it's easier to give out the counsel than to receive the counsel? Why is it that I know he'll work in your life? And I'm not going to blink. I know he will work in your life, but why is it sometimes I don't think he's going to work in my life? Simple, two points. We talked about it this morning. Because he doesn't always do what I want him to do, and when I want him to do it. And so because of that, down throughout the years, at times, I let my heart get let down because I wanted it to happen a certain way and when it didn't, I was disappointed and I lost confidence and I stopped trusting him. And so we're back here this morning and he's calling us to let it go again, resurrender surrender your life, resurrender the if-onlys re-surrender the timing give that back into my hands stop fretting about your future Don't worry about the problems of your past give that into my hands surrender that over to me once again lord thank you